Have you heard the news today? The world's become a better place. I wonder how. And everybody sings in peace. There's only one thing that we need. It's unapologetic. Hello, welcome to Unapologetic. This is the podcast created by the Academic Committee of SEC, the Sociology Study Association in the University of Amsterdam. Let us tell you a bit about this podcast. In the next hour or so, we aim to bridge pop culture and sociological imagination. This means that we are bringing the sociological gaze into everyday events that you might encounter here and there. To bring you a clearer sociological perspective, we are diving our journey into different analytical categories. In the first three episodes, we deal with gender. Today, we'll be looking at three different points. First of all, we're going to talk about what is gender, and we're going to talk about it in relation to gender and sex. Then we'll talk about the importance of language in relation to gender again. And lastly, we'll talk about Judith Butler's theory of gender. Before we start, though, we just want to make some small disclaimers. Firstly, this is being recorded on Zoom, so we hope you can understand some technical difficulties that might appear. And also, this podcast is completely run by sociology students. We aim not to bring you clear answers about the topics we discuss, but to help you question what's going on through a sociological perspective. Can I give you the tools to formulate more and more questions surrounding these topics? So remember, you might leave this podcast with more questions than when you started, but hopefully more tools and resources that will help you answer some of them. Let's hear the introductions for the people that are here with me in the podcast. My name is Anna, I'm 21 years old and I'm from Argentina. And I am really excited to be here with you all (laughs) recording this podcast today. Hi, I'm Maria, I'm 19, I'm also studying sociology. I love anything artsy and political and sociological, so I'm very excited to be here and have all all these beautiful discussions and raise all these questions with you. Hi, my name is Sarah. My pronouns are she, her. I study sociology and political science here at UVA. I'm from Italy and I'm very excited to be starting Unapologetic today. One last remark before we start talking about gender. In this podcast, we do not mean to speak for any individual group or community. As we said before, this is just a conversation between sociology students. This said, we hope you enjoy the podcast. So, um, yeah, I'm a little bit confused, Sarah, about why you introduce yourself with your pronouns. What's the reason behind that? Thank you for your question, Anna. Um, the reason why I introduce myself with my pronouns is because that is my gender. And speaking of which, um, we need to learn the difference between gender and sex. And I think you have a pretty good explanation of that. Yeah, okay, so let's look at the basics a little bit. So what's gender, what's sex, and how, how do we distinguish them? Why do we distinguish them? Um, I think it all comes back to this guy, John Money psychologist and in the 1950s he was the person who came up with the term gender because before that it was all just sex and either you were a female or a male and that was all it all came down to your genitals but then John Money he was working with intersex people and he popularized terms like gender roles sexual orientation gender and I think something that's really important here is 
he had this idea that gender is 100% constructed, right? So it doesn't matter what your genitals are, it matters how you were raised. And this brings me to the case of David Raymer. I don't know if you guys heard about it. No, actually never. Can you maybe expand on that? Yeah, so this is the John John case. And it's basically this boy who, when he was very little, his genitals were extremely damaged in a failed circumcision. And so John Manny advised his family to just raise him as a hair. Because he was like, yeah, if genitals don't matter, if we just raise this little child as a woman, it's going to be fine, you know? Gender is 100% constructed, so whatever. He was raised as Brenda, and then when he was 14, he realized that she actually felt more like a he. And so he transitioned into being a man again. Okay, the story goes on and, you know, uh, David Raymer actually had a twin brother, so it was like, you know, first it was two brothers and then brother and sister, but the point of the story is here that gender can't really be 100% constructed because then what was it in Brenda or in David that actually told him or her that they identified with a different gender, right? Yeah, it's actually so interesting, um, especially in this case because it really shows the complex nature of gender and also how much of a deeply personal experience it is. And for so many people, um, as you were speaking about trans people, there are so many trans people who also identify as they them, not necessarily as the other gender. So it's just so interesting to think about. This reminds me of trans people and how they often have a very like very strong identity of what gender they are and how they feel really like that's how they were born and like the way they were raised is usually not the way that they want to have been raised as the gender and then they just have such a strong sort of almost biological urge to be a certain way that is not the way they were raised so it raises a lot of questions of like yeah, I don't think I can answer this, just it's it's cool to think about. I introduced a little bit of the theory of gender and whether it's constructed or not, but then we also have the case of the sociologist West and Zimmerman, who in the late 80s proposed the idea of doing gender. And according to these authors, we achieve a gender because of routines embedded in everyday interaction. And that can sound a little bit too sociological, but basically what this means is that we are constantly reinforcing the gender that we were assigned to by how we interact with other people in our daily lives. And so this gender, it's kind of predetermined though, because we didn't really choose it, it's just that we were assigned to the gender according to certain sex categories. So you're either a female or you're a male, and that is purely dependent on your biology according to Weston Zimmerman. Yeah, this like makes me think of how, because like, you said that it's all based on like interactions you have with other people, right? So I was thinking about how, about gender roles and how like people that are assigned to be men and people that are assigned to be women uh, very often like act in very different ways. And that's not necessarily because of uh, anything biological. It's very like, whatever, like if you were raised differently, you probably think differently. It's just like that you act in a perhaps more empathetic way or that 
uh, you might like suppress your emotions. This can be a little controversial, but I kind of see it that way. So it's very interesting to think about the fact that all these can be like just random. Like if the if society was different, then all of these would be different. Well, according to this kind of theory. So it's really cool maybe to think about what potential would exist within another society that wasn't like that. Yeah, and actually to go back to what Anna said about gender being predetermined, uh, when we think about it, and it's, it is important to question, especially in Western society, but kind of like all around the world. But yes, when, you, when we think about it, our gender is predetermined even before we are born. Um, they find out through the ultrasound that, oh, she's a little girl, and then, oops, your, your whole room is pink. And then you start wearing dresses because your mom and dad, you, they decide that way. And, and then your entire life is shaped by the gender you were assigned at birth. And actually before birth. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And again, this theory by Weston Zimmerman depends a lot of the fact of doing gender. So there is a constant reenacting of that gender that you were assigned. So I kind of wonder what happens when... Um, there is no audience around you for, to perform. And I think that happened to a lot of us during quarantine. I watched this video on TikTok. Uh, I'm a little bit ashamed to say that, but yeah. Um, that talked a lot about how a lot of people started identifying not only as he or she, but also as they after quarantine because they suddenly stopped doing certain things that were very gendered just because they didn't have an audience to perform to anymore during quarantine. I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, I actually watched the same video. No shame in TikTok, no shame. But yes, it is so interesting because I think kind of everybody went through that in, um, during quarantine. And it is just so interesting to think about because you, you no longer have an audience. But I think that works more for cisgender people that for example, for trans people, um, because for example, um, a friend of mine was telling me that she saw this other video, they talked about how for a, this was a personal experience of a trans woman, saying that dressing up during quarantine made her feel more like a woman and really helped her um, feel like herself. I think it's very interesting to think about the way that cis people perceive and experience gender and the way trans people do, because I think there's a really big distinction in how you feel because I think for trans people often they feel like they have to to earn being the gender that they want to be and they have to prove to people that they are that. So I think that might even be like sort of internalized within them and to prove to themselves that they so for trans women they they need to like prove to themselves that they are women and they have to like show it in a certain way. Maybe that's why it's different for them maybe. Yes, yes, I totally agree. Um, it's really so important to question these things and talk about it and expose ourselves to uh, different groups and different ideas. Yeah, so on that note, I think we kind of set the basis of what gender and sex are. And from here, so there are basically two points, two key ideas to remember. Um, when we think that gender is 100% constructed, we can come back to the experience of trans people that even though they were raised with a certain gender, there's still something inside of them that it's telling them that's not the gender they identify with, right? And then on the other hand, we also have the theory of doing gender, which means that 
the gender that we are assigned to has to be constantly performed. It's well, has to be constant, constantly reenacted and stayed in social interactions. It's not something that just comes naturally with uh, our essence or our biology. So now that we talked about the basics, let's turn a little bit more towards language and what's the role of language in all of this. Now we are going to talk about language, but first of all, can anyone give me a definition of language and its importance in our society? When I think of language, I think of like the way we kind of perceive the world because everything we know is through language and we kind of put meaning onto things that perhaps wouldn't have as much meaning if we didn't have language to kind of describe them. Adding to Maria's point, it's also like to me, a tool to exchange information, that sounds really mechanical, but it actually kind of is, like, without language it would be really hard to exchange any kind of information between us. Yeah, so from a sociological point of view, we can describe language as perception, meaning, and tools, lenses, however we want to define it. And that's why it is so important that when we talk about gender, but really any topic in our society, any issue, we talk about language as well for so many different reasons, and now we're going to mention some of them. So first of all, language is about power in the sense that the moment we start defining issues, um, these issues become real to the public, real to the world. But also, it's about keeping things out and inside the agenda. Um, the moment we do not want to define something, we keep it out of the political agenda. And I think the other day we were talking about the fact that Different languages give different tools to look at the world, different perceptions. And we were talking about a very specific case when it came to gender with Spanish, actually. Maybe, Anna, you can expand on that? Yeah, so as you were saying, keeping things in the political agenda, all the bells were ringing in my head because um, a few months ago, the Spanish Royal Academy, I think that's the correct translation, it's this kind of institution that kind of states what's correct in Spanish and what's not and like you know all new grammatical rules and stuff that comes up like new words that come up like this insti this institution has to validate for them to be into the Spanish language and a few months ago they added the pronoun that has been used to represent non-binary people into a special part of the dictionary it wasn't even the real dictionary it was like this word observatory part in which they just put words that had been used a lot lately but they aren't really in the language either uh, and so they added this word ella which has it ends with an e so in spanish everything is gender if it ends with an a it's female if it ends with an o it's male and now if it ends with an e it's non-binary and so they added this word to the this section of the dictionary but even then in the definition they said something like yeah this is the pronoun for people that are non-binary but even then it's not widely used and not a lot of people know about this word or something like that yeah so the spanish royal academy recognizing this pronoun was a huge win in a sense because it spoke of all these people that hadn't been able to have a space in their own language and then a couple of weeks ago this institution actually took the word out of the dictionary because it said that it caused too much controversy. So when Sarah was telling us about putting something in the political agenda, this is exactly, I think, 
what you mean because now a lot of people just don't have a word for themselves in their own language just because this institution decided not to recognize this word because it was too controversial, quote-unquote. So, for example, this, isti- this institution holds so much power upon language to try to, like, uh, deem what is appropriate for people to discuss and not to discuss. And it shows how much power there is and how you can really easily exclude people or you can easy, really easily validate other people. And it's like, damn... Yes, this was a really good point, actually. And Anna, uh, what you said also makes me think about, to connect to the fact that language is a lens. The fact that Spanish is so binary, it also sets a narrative in people. And we see that, for example, new pronouns are becoming more normalized in English, for example, because English tends to develop so quickly, whereas uh, Romance languages, they tend to develop more slowly. There's this model, Emily Ratakowski, that uh, said that she was going to be raising her kids uh, with a they-them pronouns and uh, that that would like alleviate some of the gender roles that would be imposed upon the kid. And I think it's kind of cool, but it also raises questions of like, does that mean that eventually this kid will have to decide that they're a gender from the binary and it's like a period of them to decide because that also kind of um invalidates the the non-binary experience so i think this there's always nuance in these sort of discussions yes now that you say that i watched another video on tiktok today uh no shame um and he talked about the misconception of datum as a third gender for example or a non-gender and this person was saying, well, first of all, it is not not being a gender. That mean, that would be a gender. Uh, but also, they them is not a third, um, a third gender in the sense it is a spectrum between the binary. But there are so many non-binary people to still identify she, her, or he, him. And it's, it's, it's just so interesting. And the point you raised about Emily, there are so many questions. There's so much to really think about. What kind of narrative does that perpetrate? doesn't mean it's right or wrong, we're not here to judge anything, we're just here to raise questions and doubt, and I think that's a really good point to think about. It also makes me think of what you were mentioning of the third gender. Will this eventually lead to there being a stereotype of how a non-binary person is? So you know how there are feminine things to do and masculine things to do, maybe one day we'll have like non-binary things to do and as you were saying it being a spectrum should mean that you are free to do whatever you feel most comfortable with um yeah i I don't know i'm just hoping like we don't fall again into this categorization mentality with like you are in one of the two boxes or one of the three boxes and not free to do whatever you want yes yes i agree um because actually even now we can kind of see that so many people get invalidated when they identify as they them because they don't look androgynous enough or or you look too feminine or you look too masculine but really um yeah it is very dangerous and also talking about narrative um when our language is so binary it also sets a norm when it comes to cisgender and for that, for that reason, so many of us don't even question their gender or their gender identity. Or what does it mean to be a woman or what does it mean to be a man during the whole life? Because that's just the default. You were assigned that gender, you are that gender. 
Okay, now that we talked about narrative, um, the last part about language that we really want to touch upon is the power of language when it comes to alienating, oppressing, and marginalizing groups in society. For example, in hate speech, um, usually people tend to objectify the person that they're talking about. For example, if we're talking about trans people, they will not be recognized as trans people, but rather just as trans because they get objectified. In that sense, they also get dehumanized because they're no longer people, they're just objects. Yeah, I find that so infuriating because it's like you call someone an it sort of. Like, I don't know, in Greek, a lot of the times people that are trans are called it. And it is for objects. And our language is also gendered, so it's just... You're just exactly, like, literally objectifying a person and it's like, you see the, the power of language within that statement. It's really important to understand that language kind of have this dimension of oppression and marginalization because nowadays we're really used to hearing about politically correct language and a lot of people hate it, a lot of people think it's, you know, I don't know, just constraining you to using certain words but the truth is that words do have a lot of impact on not only what you're communicating, but also just communicating to the world what your mentality is, kind of, and I guess what's your point of view regarding certain things. So I'm not advocating for politically correct language. I'm just saying that we need to understand that the language that we use tells us more than just whatever the words are. It's more about our, like, cosmovision of the world you know like it's in how you speak so we need to bear that in mind I think yes yes absolutely be active in challenging language and the status quo also language is representation in a sense even when we watch movies they have an indirect impact on people through the language they use and not only the representation but the language in itself so when people are offensive and say, oh, you're just a politically correct person, I'm just trying to be respectful here. I don't think I'm doing any dictatorship or anything like that. It's just really about being respectful. And yeah, really trying to actively change um, the way we use language. But now we've talked about language um, and language is social, gender is social. And now Maria is gonna introduce Butler and their gender travel. Yeah, now I want to kind of like bring um, Judith Butler in the mix because I think she has, I think it's a bit hard to grasp what she's talking about because it's very philosophical, but I think it's interesting to discuss uh, and raise even more questions. Um, so Judith Butler wrote Gender Trouble in 1990 and it was kind of her response to feminism at the time to kind of problematize some of the conceptions of what gender is because a lot of women specifically through feminism um, we're talking about it as if it's something uh, that you're either raised to be uh, in a very like kind of uh, marginalized way in comparison to men or you're just like you were born this way. I want to start by saying a quote of hers to kind of introduce you to what she's talking about and she writes all bodies are gendered from the beginning of their social existence, and there is no existence that is not social, which means that there is no natural body that pre-exists its cultural inscription. So what she's saying is that basically there is no sex, because we've already talked about the distinction between sex and gender, and she's kind of saying 
actually there's no sex there's only gender and everything is very social and from the very beginning that you exist or as we said even before uh, when they see you through the ultrasound there are social inscriptions as he says so basically like symbols put onto your body to determine whether you are a man or a woman because this, uh, this is the binary that we are working with in the western world so yeah see he's kind of going back to West and Zimmerman that are claiming that one does gender and isn't gender and she's saying that we are the acts that we do. She comes up with this term gender performativity which is a bit complicated but she's trying to say that it's less about performing to other people and more about the fact that we've been socialized within a world that has certain ways of acting in relation to gender and we are always acting in a way that is gendered without even knowing. I think this is such a powerful um, idea when we think about it, because it's kind of like in contrast with everything that has been going on in sociology for so many years, the whole fact of performing who you are with Gottman and so many other sociologists. And now she brings in this whole idea that we are gender. It's not like gender is a mask that we put on, but it's just who we are, and it's just so powerful. And it's sometimes so hard to grasp because to me, I'm like, well, how is there no sex? You know, there is a biology behind us. But then we can think of intersex people. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it's like 1.7% of the whole world population that's as much as redheaded people that are out there. So that's a huge number of intersex people. And we just completely, you know, forget about the fact that being intersex exists and it's just oh no either you're a woman or you're a man and we fit people into categories that are man-made after all you know and i think that's something to bear in mind when when butler says there is no sex because yes there is a biology behind us all there is no sex i guess as in we are all men or women because there is also a spectrum in the biological end between like having an xx chromosome and an xy chromosome Yes, with what you said about biology, I think the fact that in Western society, especially we think of gender as binary, we also kind of like um, naturalize this kind of binary in the sense that, oh, well, there is a binary in gender, thus there is a binary in biology. And that's why we think of science and as nature in such a strict way. Oh, oh, you know, like you're born with your genitalia. Well, you must be a woman, you must be a man. But it's really like the boundaries are so faded and we really don't realize that. Yeah, this reminds me again of something Butler wrote. Uh, I don't remember exactly where. I think it's in Gender Trouble. I just heard it in a podcast that I was listening to. And she wrote that when you're born, you know, there's, again, language comes into play because the doctor or whoever births you says, oh, it's a boy, oh, it's a girl. And, like, what comes out of their mouth is, like, kind of enacting a certain thing. It's not just describing something. They're saying something that has consequences. And she said, imagine if uh, instead of saying it's a girl, you said it's a lesbian. And it's like this has no meaning and she says that they're the ex exactly the same thing um, which can be a bit controversial because uh, to a lot of people gender actually or sex has a lot of implications in relation to biology but it's really interesting to think about how constructed all these things are 
and trying to kind of unravel our minds from what we already know to think of what if they just said it's a lesbian, you know? I thought that was cool. But yeah, I, going back to like how we are socialized from the very beginning, we can see how kids internalize what they live within. We see how when you're a kid, you are raised and you're always like called, oh, you're such a good girl. And when adults put that language onto the world and you hear it, you internalize it and you think, oh, yes, I am a little girl. I'm so cute, you know, because that's what you are told. And Butler is saying this is exactly why we are raised to be a gender and it's not intrinsic and it can be very well just be raised to be a lesbian or something, you know? I think a good point to like, make an example out of this is the case of drag performances in which that performance that, we, that Butler is talking about that we all have to do because we are our genders, drag people bring into the extreme um, so they are just kind of making a parody out of the whole doing gender because for them they're bringing it to an extreme like for drag uh, queens you know it's putting on big hips and huge hair tons of makeup which is kind of the extreme of being a woman and then for drag kings you would you know exaggerate the characteristics of being a man Yes, and also just to go back a little bit to what Maria said about the speech and the whole, yeah, your race to be your gender. Um, I think that then comes the gender roles and, and all the gender stereotypes. And with that also comes, again, the idea of naturalization. Oh, it's in the true nature of a woman to be empathetic, to be emotional, to be, oh, you know, you can be a leader, you're a woman, because that's your nature. And it's just so interesting to, to look at. Yeah, and in a way, you very often can kind of use it to marginalize other people because a lot of people have this belief that biology is so intrinsic in the way that you are and that does not allow them to see that, hey, women can actually do more than just be at home and cook for you, you know? And I know people myself that I really, like, believe that the way that you're raised and like this has to do with your blood and your biology means that you cannot be this way and that there's something extremely wrong with like a woman being in power for example even my grandma feels this way and it's really sad and there are so many um researches that like kind of give arguments for this biological perspective because they claim to be isolating all social effects but can we really isolate all social effects into how people really behave? If we're saying that everything from language is gendered and we perceive the world through language, how can we really, you know, take out that factor and really see if it's in our biology to perform like a woman or perform like a man? And like, as you said, in these researches it's also important, like, these people that are doing the research are saying, yeah, the environment does not have an impact on this, but the researchers themselves believe in the biological perspective, for example, and the fact that they do impacts the way that the research is being done. So it's always like you really cannot get rid of these social effects because the people that are doing research are always like within the social sphere and you can't get them out of it. They always have a certain agenda in their head even if they try to get rid of it you know 
Yes, now that you say that, it is so interesting because we tend to think of science, anything that is related to biology, as, oh, we know the truth. That is it. We need to, we know all there is out there, but it's really not like that. And that really shows the importance of intersectionality in science because at the end of the day, science is about positionality and perspective and who you are and what's your position in the world. So we need more diversity, even in science. So basically, we love science, but we also need to question science. Don't just take it for granted, please. I think we can wrap up what we've been talking so far. So we started with a few concepts on gender, whether it's constructed or it's biological and sex. And then we talked about language and the different dimensions in which language operates through how it creates the way we perceive the world, how it can create oppression or marginalization. And then we ended by introducing Butler's perspective on gender, which can be a little bit confusing and very interesting nonetheless. So if there are two things you can take from today, always remember to state your pronouns because we need to normalize it. And second of all, use language to actively be inclusive and challenge the status quo. So thank you all for listening. Uh, we hope that you have taken some questions with you to think about during your day or your night, whenever you're listening. Uh, we also want to quickly shout out Meryl, because on Instagram, she almost found out how many sociologists there were in the picture. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed, and we hope to see you next month uh, in our next episode about gender again and representation. Before you leave, be sure to check out our description where we have further resources that are sociological to answer maybe some of the questions that were raised in this episode. And also check out our Instagram where we discuss some sociologists more in detail so that, again, you can learn a bit more about them. Hope to see you next time. It's on the jetty.